Please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. And also have your hymnal handy and maybe have it open to hymn number 460, Amazing Grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. We rejoice and are very glad in it. Father, we thank you that you indeed provide for your people and you have provided, Father, your word and spirit to bring us to faith, to grow us in faith and to bring us all the way home. May our time in your word today be part of that journey of you strengthening us for the journey. So be pleased, Father, to meet with your people as we look to you. Feed us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Last year, it was New Year's Day on a Sunday, and today it's New Year's Eve on a Sunday. And New Year's Eve or New Year's Day is a good opportunity to look back and evaluate the previous year. It's also a good opportunity to look ahead and make plans for the next year. Well, there was a congregation of a rural church in Olney, England, that back on January 1st, 1773, 251 years ago tomorrow, sang a hymn whose lyrics encouraged those singing to look back to the past and to look ahead to the future. This hymn was written by their pastor, by their preacher of the sermon that same day. I'm talking about the hymn, Faith's Review and Expectation, that years later, as it got published in a hymnal in 1779 called the Olney Hymnal, became better known by its first two words, amazing grace. John Newton. Some of you may be real familiar with his life. Uh, Most of us have a little bit of familiarity, maybe some out here uh, not really familiar with him at all. But as Rob mentioned, he's the author of probably what's the most well-known and beloved hymn, at least in the English-speaking world, Amazing Grace. Now, before we get into our text, both in the Bible and the hymn, we've got to um, hear a little bit about John Newton. Born in 1725, at, at seven years old, his mother died. At 11 years old, he went to work. He joined his father at sea, who was a merchant seaman captaining cargo vessels. At 22 years old, he had already been impressed by the Royal Navy, basically non-voluntarily grabbed, told that he was going to be a sailor on a warship. He ran away, got caught, got flogged. Then he got dismissed from the Royal Navy, ends up doing what he had only known how to do, going back to sea. And at 22 years old, he was on the west coast of Africa, and he was crewing the cargo ship Greyhound, left Africa on their way back to Great Britain, and there is a storm at sea 
off the coast of Ireland. In particular, a storm at sea on March 21st, 1748. Now, I've been on ships big and small. I've been on a one-man kayak in the Gunpowder Creek in Boone County, and I've been on a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, the USS Nimitz, in the Mediterranean Sea with 5,000 others. Storms at sea are rough. I've been on a frigate and a destroyer in the North Atlantic and was for a moment terrified. Storms at sea, where does the sailor go? Where's the stability? Where's the anchor? Where is the solid rock of which we spoke earlier? It's not there. In a biography of John Newton, we hear this. Describing that incident on March 21st, 1748, desperate and fully expecting to die, Newton finally blurted aloud, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. My former pastor and theological mentor, Robert Letham says, if you can pray a better prayer than Lord have mercy, pray it. Lord, have mercy. Newton looks back to that time as his conversion, when the light dawned, as it were, in his life. But then there was a period that began of progressive sanctification. You know, John Newton wasn't just going from an infidel to a completely faithful Christian in an instant. He didn't go from a blasphemer to an immediate person who spoke only true and beautiful words. No, he, he came to faith, but then he had to grow in faith. In fact, after his conversion, he captained slave trading ships. Newton, as a believer still was treating his fellow humans as less than human. But God wasn't done with Newton. He didn't stop at conversion. He grew him, he changed him. And Newton worked with William Wilberforce. And the year that Newton died in 1807, what happened? But slavery was outlawed in the British Empire. He began a good work, and God was faithful to continue that good work. A few years later, in 1764, he became pastor of a church, a rural church in Olney, England. And then in 1779, the time that hymnal was published, he became the pastor of a church in London. If you go and look in the back of the Trinity hymnal, you'll find that Newton is the author of 13 of our hymns. Now, Isaac Watts, who we've been looking at for the last four weeks, he comes in at 36 hymns. And Charles Wesley is at 21. So here's a sailor turned pastor, also hymn writer. Let's listen to the text for that sermon. It's... First Chronicles chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? 
And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations. O Lord God. First Chronicles 17 speaks of King David's past, his present, and his future. That was the sermon that Newton preached, but after the sermon, the hymn of response was faith's review and expectation. Now, in why we do what we do in worship, the singing of hymns, I wrote this, singing helps the truths of God's word to dwell in us. Singing together helps to apply God's word to our hearts. It is stating those things that are to be believed in the language of the affections, the language of the heart, and counseling one another to believe them and act on them. In other words, singing is to the heart like a confession of faith is to the mind. It takes the truth of God's word and it drives it home. It drives it deep. You see, Newton wrote a hymn of response to help his hearers understand the word and possess the word. And what's interesting is 85% of the words in Amazing Grace are all one syllable. Because you see, in this only community of 2,000 people, there were a lot of textile workers who would do their work to little um, ditties. They would make up rhymes. And Newton says, hey, if our people in their work can, can do their work and memorize songs and it helps them in their work, why not do it with God's word? And so again, like Watts, Newton is doing contemporary Christian music. The hymn before us. It's a brilliant biography of King David. It's a brilliant autobiography of John Newton. One commentator says it's a perceptive biblical theology embraced by one man deeply moved by his own redemption articulated for corporate worship. But you know what's great about this hymn in particular? It can be a significant real-time biography of our life, of your life as seen by others, as well as a significant autobiography as you think about your own life. We talked about this with Joy to the World. Do people know what they're singing? I mean, Joy to the World was, um, was everywhere. In recent days, and amazing grace is everywhere at times post 9-11, post church killing in Charleston, South Carolina. People rally around amazing grace, but do they know what they're singing? Well, what's our goal today? It's to know the biblical basis for and the practical application of the hymn Amazing Grace. To know what we're singing so that our hearts can be moving along with our lips. So that we can sing with integrity. So that this hymn can really serve as a confession of faith. Now, 
This hymn's got three dimensions of time, past, present, and future, and it's got three dimensions of direction, back, ahead, and around. So let's look first as we look back at past mercies. In other words, it's faith's review. Um, That expression, past mercies, is actually in Newton's sermon notes. He's calling it past mercies and future hopes. Those first three verses of Amazing Grace are past mercies. Look at verses one through three. Amazing grace, twas grace, and grace, that grace, tis grace, and grace. He's looking back. Just like John, excuse me, just like King David in 1 Chronicles 17, verse 16, he looks back. Who am I that you have brought me thus far? If you go back earlier in 1 Chronicles 17 to verse 7, King David knows that he was chosen from herding sheep to be a prince among God's people, to, to shepherd them. And in verses 11 and 12 of that chapter, you'll see the covenant that's being made with David's house, a kingdom that will last forever. Looking back at past mercies, faith's review. Look at what the apostle did in Ephesians 2. Speaking of Christians in general looking back at being dead, looking back at being objects of wrath, looking back at the mercy of God, the love with which he loved us. Because of his great love, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's Paul talking in general. If you want to go to Philippians, you'll see where Paul speaks of himself in particular, of who he once was and what God did. I did a bit of study of just John Newton's life. It's amazing that he lived through all of the stuff he was involved in. You could go back and read his own words that he said he sinned with a high hand. He let nothing that he wanted before his eyes, nothing was off limits. He was a, he was a sinner in technicolor. There was nothing, his language, they said, was worse than any sailor out there. But God, but God. So after he had this conversion experience at sea in March of 1748, they landed in Ireland. And what is the first thing he does? He finds a church. He goes to worship. Between birth and seven years old, his mother had taught him the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Isn't that interesting? He didn't want anything to do with it. And yet, at God's appointed time, and he describes it as the tide comes at God's appointed time. No man can control the rise or fall of the tide. 
God broke in, God rescued him and redeemed him. And he had that foundational knowledge as a young boy on his mother's lap. So kids, you're learning the first catechism, the children's catechism, the shorter catechism. You just never know how it can come in handy in years to come. Amazing, the influence of his mother. You see, Newton was lost. I once was lost, but he was not a lost cause. Do you all have any family members or friends that are lost? Newton serves as a good example. They're not a lost cause. You don't know. You pray, you wait, you trust, you hope. You just don't know. He looks back, just like David looks back at past mercies. So my friends, what do you see when you look back? What do you see? Remember, Newton on his deathbed said words to the effect, uh, when I was young, I was sure of many things. Now that I'm old, I'm really certain of only two things. First, I'm a miserable sinner. And second, Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. He is well taught who learns these two lessons. So when you look back, my friends, do you see first and foremost your sin or do you see your Savior? We'll talk more about that in a moment. So the hymn transitions from past to future grace and it takes place within the last two lines of verse three. Look with me. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, past, and grace will lead me home, future. So now the hymn, now going back to Chronicles, David, it looks ahead, future hopes and expectations. Verses four through six. Look at verses four through six, verse four in particular. The Lord has promised good to me. The Lord has promised good to me. Now, the problem is sometimes we don't think that the trial we're going through, the suffering we're going through, the misunderstanding that people have of us, the, our inability to do this or that is good. The Lord, Newton says, has promised good to me. That's David. The Lord has promised good to him. Look at this in verse 17 of... Uh, 17 of Chronicles, for a great while to come and have shown me future generations. David knows that his legacy, as it were, will continue. Now, I want to think about this promise, this, this promised good to me in, in three aspects. Uh, the promise for this present. Look in verse four, as long as life endures. There's a promise of good for as long as life endures. There's also a promise for a future life. 
Uh, Look at verse five. When this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease. He's talking about the end of your life here on earth. And then there's a promise for all eternity. Now, if you look at our verse six, it says this. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Newton didn't write that. It showed up in a hymnal around 1790. And it really took off in the United States in, in, in the um, African uh, slave um, worship, that verse. But the original verse of Amazing Grace goes like this. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. God will be forever mine. God will be forever mine. It's a promise for all eternity. There are expectations that God, who is good, will do good, will keep his promises. To have that expectation, my friends, is to not be arrogant or presumptuous. Rather, it's an expression of faith. If you believe that God will do you good all your days into the future life into all eternity, that's not arrogance. That's not presumption. That's trusting God at his word. So your life, when you look ahead of you, what do you see? And you can think tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. What do you see? Do you see you by yourself or do you see you with your Savior? David sees his Savior with him. Newton sees his Savior with him. Do you? Now, while Newton's hymn directly looks back and looks ahead, I believe it also indirectly looks around. It overtly looks back and it looks ahead and covertly, as it were, it looks around. Because you know what? When are you looking back and when are you looking ahead? You're doing that in the present time, right? You're looking back and you're looking ahead from the present, because we all live only in the present. King David, again, who am I? He's thinking about not just the past. He's thinking about who he is right there, right now. Who am I? That, Lord, you've been so good to me, and you've promised this future for me. John Newton also wrote to him, though troubles assail us. And dangers of fright, though friends should all fail us and foes all unite, yet one thing secures us, whatever betide, the Lord is our, the, the Lord will provide. He's thinking primarily about the present in that hymn. 
He's dwelling on God's provision in the present. So look at what's happening in this hymn. Looking back, giving thanks. Um, looking ahead and trusting God's promise, promise of good. But I want us to think for a moment about how that is related to manners, manners in the Christian life, Christian etiquette. What is prayer? The children's catechism asks prayer is praising God, giving thanks for all his blessings and asking him for the things he has promised in the Bible. You could simplify what David is doing and what Newton is doing in looking back at past mercies and saying, thank you. Thank you. And you can summarize and simplify um, David and Newton looking ahead based on the promises of God and asking, primarily saying, please. Looking back, giving thanks, thank you. Looking ahead, asking, please. Saying thank you, saying please. It's as simple and as difficult as that. You see, good manners before God and good manners before one another never goes out of style. In fact, they're a good indicator of who you and I really are before God and before one another. Do you think God is pleased when his people say thank you and then ask him, please do this, Lord, based on your promises? Yeah. And I think in our own relationships with one another, saying please and saying thank you is a necessary lubricant to the otherwise friction that's going to be involved in relationships between people. It's amazing what a please and a thank you will do in relationships with God and with one another. It's interesting, in his sermon notes, which I have a copy of here, Newton opens his sermon like this. The Lord bestows many blessings upon his people, but unless he likewise gives them a thankful heart, they lose much of the comfort they might have in them. Look around, present comforts, security, safety, peace. It's the Heidelberg Catechism version of comfort, security, being at peace and secure. So can you look around and see what the Lord is doing in your life right now? You see, there's conversion, but then there's progressive sanctification. I mean, David, after this, as you know, sinned mightily, was forgiven. Newton, after his conversion, continued treating his fellow humans as less than human beings. 
But when God turned up the light, he saw that what he thought maybe was at best right as worse or at, at worst right and at best kind of inconsequential. No, he helped abolish slavery. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's looking back to the past mercies, but they're informing how he's living now by faith. You see, like Paul says in Ephesians 2, you're either dead or alive. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. Yes, however, there's something called growth, something called better health and strength. You might be able to do this. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Every Christian should be able to say that. But listen to this. How about this? Do any of you all struggle with anger? I mean, really struggle with anger. Can you say this? I once was very angry, but now I'm less angry. Can you say for those that have a gloom and doom outlook, I, I, I once complained most of the time, but now I complain some of the time? Fill in the blank. What's your struggle? What's, as it were, your besetting sin? Can you say, I once was really jealous of other people when they had stuff I wanted. But now I'm learning contentment in the Lord and I'm not so jealous. Fill in the blank. I once laid awake for days worrying about whether or not I would find a job. Now I'm resting content that the Lord will provide for me. I once was, but now am. Fill in the blank. You see, the life of a Christian, past mercies, future hopes, present comforts. John Newton, the pastor, was known as being a warm, affectionate man. That's why the congregation grew from 200 to 600 in a town of 2,000. And he had a ministry writing letters to people, especially fellow pastors, encouraging them. He was a warm and affectionate man, pastor. And this is how he ended his sermon. We are spared thus far, but some, I fear, are strangers to the promises. You are entered, you have entered upon a new year. It may be your last. You are at present barren trees in the vineyard. Oh, fear, lest the sentence should go forth. Cut it down. There's the affectionate 
pastor letting his hearers know, do not presume on the next day. Get right with the Lord. He is calling you. Are you a stranger to the promise? Or were you once very familiar with the promise, but now it's grown cold? In a few minutes, we're going to sing, Behold the Lamb, and there's this line. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. My friends, this hymn, God's Word, calls us to look back, look ahead, and look around. And if looking back on 2023 leads to regret and looking ahead to 2024 leads to fear, what now? Well, remember God's grace. Remember your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And remember your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Sometimes we sing grace unmeasured from hymns modern and ancient. And we sing this grace amazing, pure and deep that saw me in my misery, that took my curse and owned my blame so I could bear your righteous name. My friends, John Newton recognized that God's grace saw him in his misery and brought him out of his misery. God's word, this hymn, also calls us to see, to live by faith. After all, notice the title. It's faith's review and expectation. Not me on my own in my own wisdom. I look back and I look ahead. No, it's faith's review and expectation. We're to look at it through the lens of faith. We're going to be getting back to our series in Luke next week. And remember, knowing for sure that Jesus is for real is what Luke is doing in his gospel. He wants his readers to know for sure that Jesus is for real. And in singing faith's review and expectation, in singing amazing grace, John Newton wants us to know for sure that grace is real and grace is available in the person and work of Jesus. My friends, faith enables all of us to humbly and confidently declare over and over again, I once was, but now am, and one day will be. I once was, but now am, and one day will be. I once was, but now am, and one day will be. And singing faith's review and expectations, singing amazing grace at the turn of the year drives that truth home into our hearts so that that truth works its way out into our lives. May God be pleased to do what only his word and spirit can do in our lives as we look away from ourselves and to Jesus. Amen.
Father, we thank you that you are pleased to rescue someone like John Newton and use him not only to serve as a pastor, but to write hymns that have lasted now over 250 years for the benefit of your people. Father, may we really truly grow in our understanding that your grace, the grace that is Jesus, is absolutely, unbelievably, incomprehensibly amazing. Amen.